Sir, we're picking up a signal from the planet. On screen. Sorry, sir, it's audio only, no visuals. Where does it come from, number one? It appears to be coming from a small landmass in the northern hemisphere of the planet. It identifies itself as coming from the University of Manchester. A university? That sounds promising. But sir, they have a big dish pointed straight at us. Arm weapons and go to yellow alert. Let's not take any chances. They are identifying themselves as Jodrell Bank, sir. Hostile intent, unknown. Very well. I think we're ready for them whatever they throw at us. Open a channel. Aye, sir. This is Captain Sam Lovell of the USS Merlin. Please respond. The Jodcast, bringing astronomy to the Barbie. With Megan Argo, Sarah Bryan, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison and Neil Young. The Jodcast, November 2009 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Stuart Lowe and joining me this time we have Jen Gupta, Sarah Bryan and Neil Young. Hi everyone. Hello everyone. Hello. Hi. So just before we get on with the main part of the show, we thought we'd give you a quick update on Jodcast Live. Unfortunately, all the tickets have now gone. Yeah, I think that's probably a good thing. Mm-hmm, definitely. We so listeners. we do. And we're all looking forward to Jodcast Live. That's going to be on the 21st of November for those who have got a ticket. Slightly dreading it, slightly looking forward to it. Bit of both. <laughs> So Jodcast Live will be recording the December show, but on the show this time we find out about the Parkes Radio Telescope and everything Australian, and we hear about what you can see in the night sky during November. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Shaping the heliosphere, a record-breaking distant cluster, and another impressive exoplanet haul from Harps. Solar physicists thought they knew the shape of the Sun's heliosphere, but new results from the Interstellar Boundary Explorer have revealed a huge ribbon of intense emission that was completely unexpected. The space between stars is not empty, but filled with a very tenuous gas known as the interstellar medium. As the Sun moves through this gas, it emits a fast-moving plasma known as the solar wind. These charged particles spread out spherically, creating the heliosphere, a cavity in the interstellar medium swept out by the solar wind. Launched in October 2008, the Interstellar Boundary Explorer, IBEX, was designed to investigate the nature of the interactions between this solar wind and the interstellar medium at the edge of the solar system where the wind hits the ISM and slows down in a termination shock of what is known as the interstellar boundary. This boundary region emits no light, so it cannot be detected by conventional telescopes. Models predicted that the shape of the heliosphere resembled a comet, a sphere that was swept back by the Sun's movement through the ISM, but what IBEX found was something different. IBEX was designed to detect particles known as energetic neutral atoms. They start off as ionised atoms in the boundary region, where they can pick up electrons and become neutral. Ionised atoms have electrical charge, and are affected by the charged plasma of the solar wind, and the magnetic fields that are carried with it. Once they become neutral, they are no longer affected by these magnetic fields, and can travel along straight trajectories. The detectors on IBEX were designed to pick up these energetic neutral atoms coming from the boundary region. Over six months of observations, they mapped the whole sky. What the results show is an unexpectedly bright ribbon of emission, running almost 360 degrees around the sky, a feature that was not predicted by models of the heliosphere. This ribbon is thought to be where charged particles are becoming bunched at the boundary. The reason for this is not certain, although David McComas, IBEX's principal investigator, 
suggests that it could be caused by the magnetic fields of the Milky Way's own galactic wind interacting with the heliosphere. The results, published in the journal Science during October, put the observations of the Voyager spacecraft in context. The two Voyager probes were launched in 1977 and are currently travelling through the interstellar boundary region where the energetic neutral atoms originate. While the results from IBEX match what the Voyager probes are encountering, the bright strip discovered by IBEX runs right between the positions of the two spacecraft. Eric Christian, IBEX deputy mission scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, likens this effect to having two weather stations which miss a big storm passing directly between them. The ribbon has also been detected in data from the Cassini spacecraft, although at different energies from the particles detected by IBEX. While it seems clear that the true shape of the heliosphere is somewhere between a comet and a perfect sphere, much more modelling is needed. Look deep enough with a sensitive telescope, and a seemingly empty patch of sky is full of galaxies. Look closely and you'll see that they are often gathered together in clusters. These massive collections of galaxies are the largest gravitationally bound objects in the universe, but it is uncertain how long ago these clusters formed. Now, using a variety of instruments, a team led by Stefano Andrian of the National Institute for Astrophysics in Milan, Italy, has discovered the most distant galaxy cluster ever found. The cluster, known as JKCS041, is located in the constellation of Cetus, and lies about 10.2 billion light-years away, beating the previous record holder by almost 1 billion light-years. It is so far away that the light now arriving at Earth was produced by the cluster when the universe was only about a quarter of its current age. The astronomers first discovered the galaxy in infrared observations made with the UK infrared telescope, UKIRT, in 2006. The optical light from galaxies this far away is shifted into the infrared part of the spectrum due to the expansion of the universe, so old galaxies like these are often detected by infrared telescopes. Further observations with both optical and infrared telescopes confirmed the distance of the object, but could not rule out the possibility that, rather than being a genuine gravitationally bound cluster, the object could just be a chance alignment of galaxies along our line of sight. To test this, the team examined X-ray observations from the Chandra Space Telescope. Nearby galaxy clusters have extended X-ray emission, caused by hot gas in the space between the galaxies. This gas, known as the hot intracluster medium, is only observed in genuine gravitationally bound clusters of galaxies, and so is a good test of whether a group of galaxies just lie along the same line of sight by chance, or are physically associated. When the astronomers examined the Chandra observations of JKCS041, they found a significant amount of extended X-ray emission within the cluster, coming from the hot gas of the intracluster medium, showing that it is a physically connected group of galaxies. This is an important discovery, because this is close to the distance limit expected for a galaxy cluster, based on how long it should take for them to assemble, following the Big Bang, and studying its characteristics can reveal much more about how the universe evolved. 2009 has been a good year for exoplanets, and one team of astronomers have discovered most of them. Since the first planet was found orbiting a star other than the Sun, many more have been discovered using increasingly sensitive instruments and sophisticated techniques. Because they are so faint compared to the parent stars, most planets are discovered through indirect methods. One of the most successful has been the radial velocity method, which uses the principle of the Doppler effect to detect the tiny changes in velocity of a star caused by an orbiting planet. This is the technique used by the High Accuracy Radial Velocity Planet Searcher, or HARPS, mounted on the European Southern Observatory's 3.6-metre telescope at La Silla in Chile, which repeatedly measures the radial velocities of stars that might host planetary systems. On the 19th of October, 
members of the HARP's team presented their latest results, the discovery of another 32 new planets, bringing the total number of known exoplanets to more than 400. The radial velocity technique is most sensitive to large planets orbiting close to their parent star, but due to its high precision, HARPS is capable of detecting smaller planets known as super-Earths. The new batch of exoplanets range in size from just five times the mass of the Earth up to ten times the mass of Jupiter. HARPS has been largely responsible for the detection of 24 of the 28 known planets with masses below 20 times that of Earth, and has now discovered more than 75 of the 400 known exoplanets, making it the most productive current planet finder. However, HARPS will soon have competition in the form of Kepler, a NASA satellite launched in March with the aim of detecting Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone, the region around a star where water can exist as a liquid. Rather than measuring the wobble of stars, Kepler will monitor their brightness looking for the tiny dips in intensity caused by planetary transits. And finally, October was another busy month of International Year of Astronomy events. On the 22nd to the 24th of October, the IYA cornerstone project Galilean Nights saw astronomers and enthusiasts taking to the streets all around the globe, pointing their telescopes at the same objects that Italian astronomer Galileo observed 400 years ago. Spread over three nights, the project saw hundreds of registered events take place, with many people getting their first look through a telescope at Jupiter and the Moon. Following on from Galilean nights came the second Moonwatch event of the year. This UK-based event ran from October the 24th to November the 1st, encouraging people to go out and observe the Moon. As part of the event, a Moonwatch was also held on Twitter on October the 26th and 27th, turning it into a global event. Unfortunately, many observers saw nothing but clouds on both nights, but this didn't stop many Twitter users joining in, tweeting and retweeting images, information and live video from across the world. Astronomy FM hosted a special Moonwatch show that went on for several hours, including on-the-hour updates from Adrian West of Newbury Astronomical Society in the UK, and Elias Jordan, Tavi Greiner and Dr Ian O'Neill in the US. Despite the clouds, this second Moonwatch event was again an astounding success, with people from around the world joining in with a virtual star party of epic proportions. The team behind the Twitter Moonwatch are already planning the next event, a meteor watch which will be held to coincide with the Geminid meteor shower in December. Thanks for that, Megan. And as Megan described there, there were lots of events happening all around the world. Here in Manchester, we took some telescopes from Jodrell Bank onto the streets in Piccadilly Gardens, and we had great fun there. It was quite a big hit. Uh, we estimate that we had about 200 people using the telescopes, and about 80 to 90% of those people hadn't had to use one before. Um, you'll be able to find the links for the uh, pictures on our show notes. Yeah, Moonwatch was a success once we actually managed to get the telescopes. Uh, a couple of us moved a telescope from the physics building to the astrophysics building and got stopped halfway by security, who thought we were actually stealing the telescope and almost caused, called the police on us. Thankfully they didn't, and we were able to go to Piccadilly Gardens. And amazed people that they could actually see something from the middle of Manchester. Quite a few of them were asking us if they could see the Apollo landing sites, and we had to explain that unfortunately you couldn't. Our telescopes are just too small, and even the largest telescopes on the Earth can't see the Apollo landing sites. Of course, regular listeners will know that LRO from NASA recently imaged the landing sites on the moon. If you've seen that recently, they've now got a photo where you can see the flag that Apollo 17, I think, put up. You they've can even that. see the flag now. Or you can kind of see the shadow from it. It's that detailed now. And it's over 35 years since the last person actually walked on the moon. That was back in the Apollo era. And a radio telescope that was deeply involved in the Apollo 11 landing was the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia. 
Neil, you've recently been to Australia doing some observing with the Parkes Radio Telescope. How did that go? So I initially went to Parkes for a radio astronomy school, which lasted about a week and consisted of uh, several lectures or seminars on anything from radio interferometry onto polarisation studies and also pulsar research, which I'm interested in. For the latter week, which I was actually in Parkes, I did did observing of several sources, several uh, pulsars, uh, rotating radio transients, which are quite interesting pulsars, which exhibit long nulls. We uh, we time a pulsar and we expect to see several pulses, uh, very consistent pulses over time, and these rotating radio transients actually stop their emission and uh, it makes it very hard to actually understand what they're doing. So they go silent for a little bit. Yes, they go silent, that's right. So yeah, I managed to talk to John Sakistian, the operation scientist for the uh, the DISH, and he had a lot to say. So we're here at the Parks Observatory in New South Wales, Australia, and joining us today is uh, John Sarkissian, the operation scientist of the Parks Telescope, the 64-metre DISH. Uh, good morning, Neil. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm not bad, thanks. Okay. Right then, so could you first of all tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your position as operation scientist and what that means? That's right. Well, um, I'm an operation scientist here at the CSRO Parks Radio Observatory, and um, my main responsibilities are the operation systems development at the radio telescope and the support of visiting astronomers with their observations. Um, in addition, I'm, I'm also involved in pulsar research, which is an exciting field of radio astronomy, as you know. Definitely. And I'm also involved in numerous outreach and public relations activities for the CSRO Australia Telescope National Facility. So how long have you actually been at Parks then? Okay, well, um, this October um, will be 13 years. I originally came here in 1996 to work on the Galileo mission to Jupiter. Parks Observatory was contracted by NASA JPL to track the spacecraft for 10 hours every day for one year. They needed operators to do all that, and so I came along and um, and seized the opportunity to do a lot more things, and I've really enjoyed my time. It's been absolutely fantastic. It's a wonderful place to work, and um, these last 13 years have been just is it just wonderful. Yeah, that's good to know. Okay, so um, can you tell us a little bit about the telescope, how it was built, and who built it, please? Well, the, the Parkes Telescope this, this October will be commemorating 48 years of, of operation. It was commissioned back in on the 31st of October 1961, and it was um, designed to CSRO specifications by a British firm, Freeman Fox and Partners of the UK. Um, in fact, it's the same company that designed and built the Sydney Harbour Bridge. They've, they've got an illustrious record in Australia of, of building um, uh, iconic engineering structures. The, but the main contractors for the telescope were MAN of, of Germany and Escania, who built the master equatorial system that helps point the telescope very accurately. And during the, the design phase of the telescope, Freeman Fox and Pun actually contracted a, a famous engineer by the name of Barnes Wallace, who contributed um, a few very innovative design features that have um, allowed the telescope to remain at the forefront of world radio astronomy ever since. For example, it was Barnes Wallace's idea to build it like an inverted umbrella pivoted in the centre. Other telescopes at the time, large dish antennas, were being pivoted on the edges, like the Jodrell Bank dish, for example. Barnes Wallace thought, you know, perhaps a better way to do it would be to mount it from the centre, like an umbrella, and it's worked wonderfully. And the design, many of his design features were incorporated in all subsequent large single dish antennas. um, which is why I guess the Parkes Telescope looks like the archetypal radio telescope because um, it was so successful, people end up copying the design. 
perhaps the most famous example of that was that JPL in the early 1960s actually used the Parkes telescope as the model for the large antennas in their deep space network. And so um, whenever people visit nowadays, they always think it's a satellite tracking antenna and we have to always um, correct them, say, no, we're a radio telescope and so on. But um, at the time, it was designed as a survey instrument and it was only intended to have a lifetime of about 20 years or so. So we well and truly exceeded that. Mm. And perhaps the, the main reason why we have exceeded that design lifetime of 20 years is because the telescope itself was was built so well, it was much stronger than it really needed to have been. And it's meant that over the years we've been able to upgrade the, the telescope and make it more efficient and more reliable. For example, over the, the years we've, we've replaced the inner 55 metres of steel wire mesh panels with perforated aluminium panels. And that's allowed the telescope to be more sensitive at the higher frequencies. And so we've been able to do research and, and observations that it wasn't originally optimised for. Also, in 1995, we replaced the focus cabin with a, a new larger one, which is double the size and weight of the old one, and that's meant that we were able to, to install several receivers in the, in the focus cabin, and just by pressing a button in the control room, we can move any one of those receivers onto the focus within a very short time, within just a, a minute or so, and that's made the telescope a much more frequency agile and more efficient instrument. In the past, if you wanted to change receivers and observe at a different frequency, the entire process would take more than a day to, to do because you had to disassemble the receiver that was installed and then um, bring that down in pieces and then take the new receiver up again in pieces and reassemble it all in the focus cabin. And it was very time-consuming and not very efficient way of changing receivers. But with this new focus cabin, it's made the process a lot easier for us. And in fact, most of the, the upgrades to the, the telescope, at least on the, the hardware side in terms of the dish surface and so on, have been um, either completely or partially funded by, by NASA. Because mm. each time NASA comes to us um, to support a, a space mission or so, we usually end up getting a better telescope out of it. We, 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 for example, the monies we, we received from tracking Apollo 11, we put into upgrading the dish service in 1970. And more recently, um, in 2003, we, we were asked by NASA to support their, their Mars missions. There was a traffic jam of spacecraft at Mars that, that year in 2003. And so um, we extended the panelling out to 55 metres. In 1995, in order to support the Galileo mission, we, they built us the new focus cabin because they only needed us for 10 hours every day for one year. So what were, we, what were we to do with the remaining 14 hours, you know? So NASA thought it was a good idea to build us a new focus cabin so that we could switch receivers very quickly. So once a Galileo track was, was over, we'd put our radio astronomy receiver on focusing and observe for the 14 hours, and then the following day we'd switch back very quickly to the Galileo receiver and track the spacecraft for them, and so on. We've had a really great relationship with, with NASA over the years. So each time they come to us almost, we get a better telescope with new receivers and, and upgrade. And the reason they, they have come to us is because the telescope itself is a near-ideal instrument for tracking spacecraft in deep space. Mm -hmm. But it's only a small portion of what we do here. It represents about, well, perhaps less than 1% of the work we do. But it's invariably the most famous things we do, and so the public have it in their mind that that's all we do. And so, but we are first and foremost the radio astronomy observatory. So you can just talk us through the significance of building the site at Parks. Edward Taffy Bowen, who was the chief of the CSIRO's radiophysics division in the 1950s, decided that in order to 
further the pioneering research into radio astronomy done in the immediate post-war years, he concluded that the next instrument that the CSRO should build was a large fully steerable dish antenna. And that eventually became the the 64-metre antenna here, the dish here. And they needed a place to put it somewhere because it was going to be such a large instrument. They really needed somewhere pretty remote from large population centres that could potentially produce a lot of radio frequency interference, or RFI as we call it. And so they they searched around the, the state of New South Wales looking for an appropriate site to build the telescope. They needed it to be within at least four four or five hours' drive of Sydney so that technicians at, at their headquarters in Sydney could come out during the day, do some work, and conceivably even return later on, um, all in one day. Eventually, they chose the Parks region in central New South Wales, which is about three or 400 kilometres um, almost due west of, of Sydney, because um, just to the east of the site is a little mountain range. Well, they're lofty peaks by Australian standards, but uh, there's little foothills more. But they protect the the site from the large population centres further east, such as Sydney and and Orange and Bathurst and so on. And the town of Parks is about 20 kilometres south of the site, behind some low hills. And so the area was actually very radio quiet in the 1950s. There was a, a farmer by the name of Australia Helms, or better known as, as Osti to his friends, who was thinking of, of selling part of his property. And so the CSRO looked, looked it over and decided it, it was an appropriate site. So they built the, the telescope here. The other great advantage, of course, is that from these latitudes in Australia, the centre of the Milky Way passes directly overhead. And so you're able to see the richest and uh, most interesting parts of the Milky Way from these, this latitude in, in Australia. And because we're in a relatively remote part of, of New South Wales also, it was a very radio-quiet site. So it was an ideal place to, to build it. The valley that we're in is called the Goobang Valley. And another, I guess another reason was the climatic conditions here were such that the winds weren't as severe as perhaps some other alternate places that they had looked at. And so although the last few weeks, as you know, Neil, the, the wind's been pretty high. <laughs> so we're not, we're not immune from high winds, but at least for a large part of the year, the winds are quite low. And so if you're building a, a large inverted umbrella like the Parkes Telescope is, you don't want to have a, a region that has very high winds because just like an umbrella, when the wind blows, it wants to try and do things to the antenna that, it's not, that we don't want, want it to do. The wind loading is severe. And so we usually have to park the telescope in the stow position, which is pointing up. And nowadays, you know, we we probably lose around 3% of time because of that. You mentioned the Apollo 11 mission earlier. Um, So could you just walk us through what role Parks played in this mission? I mentioned that the the Parks was the model for the large antennas of the Deep Space Network. So in the 1960s, NASA began to, to build those. In 1966, they built the first antenna at Goldstone. But because of the budget cutbacks, they, they weren't able to build the other 64-metre antennas at Tidbinbilla, near Canberra and, and uh, Madrid until the early 1970s. And so when the Apollo 11 mission was coming up in 1969, NASA were quite keen to have another large antenna tracking it in addition to the big Goldstone dish and the, the smaller array of 26-metre antennas at Honeysuckle Creek, again near Canberra and, and elsewhere around the globe. 
And so in October of 68, when John Bolton, who was the, the legendary first director of the Parks Observatory, was visiting Caltech to see some colleagues, he was invited to a dinner party one evening at the home of Bob Leeton, who was a brilliant Caltech engineer. And in fact, many of the listeners, he may be more familiar as the Leeton in Feynman Lecture Series of textbooks. But anyway, um, during the course of the dinner, John Bolton was asked if he could make the Parkes telescope available for the upcoming Apollo 11 mission. Because it was the, the first manned lunar landing mission, there were a lot of unknowns. NASA really didn't know what to expect. They weren't sure what the signal strength from the transmitters on the lunar module would be like. So they were, they were very keen to have the largest and most sensitive radio telescopes pointing at the lunar module to be receiving those signals at those critical moments, especially when it was on the lunar surface. And so because human lives were, were at stake and because of the historic nature of the mission, John Bolton and Taffy Bowen agreed to support the mission. And so in the le months leading up to the mission, um, there was a lot of work going on here to, to support it. And because it was in July, the weather was the, the last thing they had on their mind because uh, the weather in July in, in Australia is very cold and it's winter here. But winter is the, the least windy part of the year. <laughs> they didn't think there'd be any problems with wind on that day. Unfortunately, uh, Mother Nature had other ideas. And so on the day of the moonwalk, the astronauts had landed about... 6.17 a.m. in the morning, um, Australian Eastern Standard Time. And that was about seven minutes, seven hours before the, the moon was yet to rise at Parks. And so while they were preparing for the, the moon to rise, a violent squall hit the telescope, literally just minutes before the moonwalk was to, to begin. The dish was fully tipped over, waiting for the moon to rise when this violent squall hit. And in fact, um, it was struck by gusts of over 110 kilometres an hour, which um, forced the dish and slammed it back against the, the zenith axis pinions and caused the tower to shudder and sway. John Bolton held his nerve and told his men to stay on it. And um, just as Buzz Aldrin switched on the, the TV camera, the moon moved into the, the field of view of the Parkes telescope. And along with the antennas at Honeysuckle Creek near Canberra, and the giant Goldstone dish in California. We received the signal simultaneously, relayed them to Houston. Because the Parkes telescope was the prime receiving antenna, intended to be the prime receiving antenna for the moonwalk, um, everything was configured for Parkes to be receiving those. And so all the equipment, the relays, everything was optimized for Parkes. And so um, it was no surprise that the, the best TV pictures received came through Parks and so Houston within a few minutes of the broadcast beginning switched to Parks and remained with Parks for the remainder of the moonwalk. Luckily the winds abated um, slightly but throughout the almost the entire course of the, the EVA the winds were well above what we normally observe through. EVA stands for extravehicular activity. That's right yeah the moonwalk. So throughout almost the entire moonwalk the winds were well above our normal safe operating speeds and so the world at large were watching the TV and, and seeing those ghostly pictures of Armstrong and Aldrin on the moon had no inkling about what the drama that was unfolding here at, at Parks. But luckily everything worked brilliantly um, and it was such a dramatic moment, especially at the beginning, that it inspired, about 30 years later, it inspired the Working Dog Production Company in Melbourne here to produce a film on, on it called The Dish. Um, just inquire at your local... Um, video still, and I'm sure you'll get it. It's a, it's a fantastic film. It actually is really good. <laughs> <laughs>
So you mentioned a little bit earlier about the science at Parkes. Could you briefly go into the capabilities of the telescopes? Okay, as I said, when the telescope was built back in the early 60s, it was intended to be a survey instrument. At the very beginning, Taffy Bowen and John Bolton understood that for the telescope to make an impact, they really needed to get great results very early. And within months of the telescope being commissioned, they, they struck gold, if you like. In August of 62, the Parkes Observatory was um, instrumental in, in discovering the, the true nature of what we now refer to as quasars, which are the most distantly known objects in the universe. So these are radio galaxies uh, several million light years away. And in fact, the area of, of emission is, is very small, but because they're so far away, the, the amount of energy being emitted by the, is incredible. You can detect it clear across the, the universe. Even with relatively small instruments, you can detect some of the, the brighter ones. They're just so, so energetic. Now, they were very enigmatic. No one really knew what they were. And part of the problem was they, they weren't sure in an optical photographic plate which objects they were. You know, they, in the field of the, the radio beam, there were innumerable stars. So which one of those was the, the emitter? It wasn't really all that well known. And so in August of 1962, it was realised that the moon was going to pass in front of one of the brighter one of these called um, 3C273. It was the 273rd object in the third catalogue of radio sources compiled by the Cambridge Radio Astronomy Group. And Cyril Hazard, who was an astronomer at Sydney University, realised that if you could time the disappearance of the signal as the moon moved in front of it and then when it reappeared on the other side, because they could calculate the edge of the moon very, very precisely, they could determine exactly where that object was. And so John Bolton got involved with the Parkes Telescope and they observed the, the source. And in fact, it was going to occur right on the telescope's horizon. And so just to be sure, John Bolton cut pieces off the dish so he could tip it even further and dug a trench around it to get it even further still. And they made the observation and determine the, the position, and they then sent the, that information to um, Martin Schmidt, who was working at the Mount Palomar 200-inch telescope in California. He observed it and took a spectra of it, and it took a, another couple of years until he realised that what he was observing were the spectral lines of, a, of an object that was incredibly redshifted, indicating that it was very, very distant. And so that began an entirely new line of research other areas of research here that we've done is pulsars. Soon after pulsars were discovered by Anthony Hewish and Jocelyn Bell in 1967, just a week or so after the paper was published in Nature, astronomers here observed the, the pulsar and then immediately started looking for more. And so ever since then, the telescope now has discovered more pulsars than all the other telescopes in the world combined. One reason for that is because of our ideal location in the world. Pulsars are normally found within the galactic plane, in the Milky Way. And so if you've got the centre of the Milky Way with the richest and most interesting parts visible directly overhead, then you'll, you're going to be discovering a, an incredible number of pulsars. So that's been a major area of research. And just to, to give you a flavour of some of the things that we, we've discovered, just in the last few years, in 2003, during the, the High Galactic Pulsar Survey, the double pulsar was discovered here. Um, that's two pulsars orbiting about each other. That's been a great system to, to be studying in great detail because it allows you to study the, the magnetospheres of the pulsars for the very first time in detail because the beam of the pulsars have to pass through the magnetosphere of the companion pulsar 
And so we were able to, to probe the magnetospheres of pulsars in great detail for the first time. We are also able to use it to do really um, stringent tests of general relativity. One example that I'd like to quote is that the two pulsars are about 800,000 kilometres apart you know, in their orbit, which is about twice the Earth-Moon distance. But they take only 2.4 hours to orbit each other. So it's a very relativistic system. Yeah. And general relativity predicts that in such a strong gravitational field like that, gravitational waves must be radiated, taking energy out of the system, that should result in the orbit of the, the pulsar shrinking by 7 millimetres a year. And in fact, we, we've done the observations, again, with astronomers from Jodrell Bank Observatory and in Italy and our colleagues here. And we found that, yes, indeed, it is shrinking by 7 millimetres, which is an incredible achievement. It just shows just the level of precision that we can observe these, these really fascinating objects. In 2006, we also detected the first radio magnetar. Magnetars are believed to be similar to, to pulsars, but only even more magnetized, you know, a thousand times more magnetic than, than normal pulsars. They're still little understood objects. Um, most of the magnetars have been discovered in the X-ray and gamma-ray regime. Of the, the two known magnetars, which were discovered in 2006 and 2007, both were found here at the Parkes Telescope. Mm. That's one area that I've been involved in to regularly observe the magnetars and, and try and understand how they work with my colleague Fernando Camillo who's the principal investigator for that project. So what frequencies can you observe with the uh, Parkes telescope? Well the Parkes telescope can theoretically observe from as low as say 75 megahertz all the way up to maybe 115 gigahertz frequency. However because of various constraints such as RFI and um, the surface accuracy and so on our receivers currently operate from about 600 megahertz up to about 22 gigahertz. That's quite a large range of frequencies for a radio telescope to be operating at. And we're able to do that because of all the upgrades we've done on the surface um, over the years. And it's, it's one reason why the telescope is such a productive instrument because astronomers can, can observe over such a, a large range of frequencies. It just makes, makes the research here more efficient and productive. Now, one receiver that has really revitalized the observatory is what we refer to as the 20 centimetre multi-beam receiver. Conventional type receivers essentially look at a single point in the sky at any one time. They would sit on the focus and it would concentrate the radio waves, convert them to electrical impulses, send the signals down for amplification and digitization and processing and so on. But um, in the early 1990s, it was realized that you can actually do a bit more than that and if you could build a, we call a multi-beam system, which is several receivers in one, just all clustered together at the focus, then you could look at several points simultaneously on the sky. And so um, the CSRO set about to build the 20-centimeter multi-beam system, which had 13 receivers in one. And that's meant that when the receiver was built and put in place, that you could look at 13 points simultaneously in the sky, and it was equivalent to having 13 Parkes radio telescopes all sitting side by side scanning the sky, and it's, it's fantastic. For a fraction of the price, you get 12 extra telescopes, essentially. <laughs> and so because the telescope is essentially a survey instrument, surveys which in the past would have taken perhaps 30, 40 years to complete could be completed in just three or four years. 
using this multi-beam system because you can, as a telescope scanning across the sky, it looks at 13 points simultaneously rather than a single point. And so suddenly a lot of surveys that hitherto had been difficult to even get going because no one's going to spend 30 years of their career doing one survey and so on, suddenly became feasible. And so we built the receiver and it's been a fantastic instrument here. For example, we began with what we call the High Pass Survey, the H1 Parks All Sky Survey, which was where we, we scanned the entire sky visible from parks at the 21-centimetre hydrogen line. The data we collected was incredible, but it's allowed astronomers to, to map the distribution of galaxies out to about 300 million light years or so. A related survey to that was what we call the Zone of Avoidance Survey. The zone of avoidance is the central part of the, the galactic plane, the Milky Way essentially, where in optical wavelengths the, the light is blocked by all the dust and gas that lies in the Milky Way and so you can't see what lies beyond that. And so it's been referred to as the zone of avoidance because the galaxies and things that lie beyond them don't seem to be there because the, the light just doesn't get through. But in radio wavelengths the signal gets right through, un, unattenuated almost. And so you're able to, if you could survey the, the galactic plane, um, you can see what lies beyond for the first time. And that was completed within a, a couple of years. And um, the result is that there's pretty much the same there as, as there is elsewhere in the, in the, in the universe. So, um, but at least we've filled in some of the detail now. So that's been really great. And, of course, we began the, the Pulsar Survey, the Parks um, Multi-Beam Pulsar Survey. In 1997, um, an analogue filter bank, which was designed and built at a Jodrell Bank Observatory, installed here. And um, we scanned the, the entire galactic plane, the Milky Way, that, that is visible from parks. And in the space of, I think it was four years, we discovered over 700 pulsars in that survey. We, we more than doubled the previously known number. And of the pulsars known before the survey, about half were found at parks also. So we've it's been an incredible survey, absolutely um, phenomenal, the results, and the um, it's just a fantastic survey, and all thanks to the multi-beam receiver. And the reason that we were able to build the multi is quite interesting because it was all due to the Galileo probe. Shortly after it was launched and sent on its way to Jupiter, the antenna, which was built like an umbrella and which was supposed to be unfurled again like an umbrella once it was in, in, in space, failed to unfurl. And so this thing was stuck and NASA thought, oh my goodness, you know, we're going to lose all the data, billion dollar mission. Fortunately, it took seven years to, to get to Jupiter. They had time to think up a solution and their solution was to link all the large antennas in their deep space network along with parks so that the combined signal strength could be boosted and they could recover some the information that was being transmitted. Um, if the antenna had unfurled properly, the data rate would have been about 139,000 bits per second from the spacecraft. With the antenna in its stuck position, it was down to 10 bits per second. But by linking the various antennas together... For those few hours that they were all linked together in viewing the spacecraft, um, the bit rate could be raised to 160 bits per second. Still well down on 139,000 bits per second, but better than 10. And then by using clever data compression algorithms and so on, they were able to recover 70% of the planned science and salvaged it from total disaster. But for us to support, we needed a bigger focus cavern, as I mentioned before, so that we could have more than one receiver up there. And by building that larger focus cavern, it meant we could we could actually build the multi-beam receiver and put it in the, the focus. Because the old focus cavern was too small. 
there wasn't room to put the the 13-beam multi-beam receiver in there. Um, but with thanks to the failure of the Galileo antenna, we were able to extend man's knowledge of the universe even even more. And so maybe we should need more missions like that. You know? <laughs> uh, it's been really great for Parks Observatory, for radio astronomers around the world who who come to use a telescope. So I noticed while we're actually in the control room doing the observations that it isn't actually operated like the Jodrell Bank level telescope and um, where we have a central controller or operator who is essentially there 24 hours of the day. Whereas at Parks, there are several computers on a desk of which you can use the, uh, the digital filter banks and the different software and the multi-beams. There's quite a lot of visitors who go to the Parks telescope to use it in different setups. So star formation people, pulsar people like myself and other people with different interests. So out of curiosity, how much time is actually allocated to these different astronomical research areas? Okay, well, it, it depends on the, the astronomers. Um, we're a national facility. We're owned by the Commonwealth Government, operated as a national facility through the CSIRO, which means that any astronomer in Australia and around the world can apply to use it. Their projects are judged on their merits, and if we think the project is good enough, we will give them the time. We don't charge anyone for it. They just come along, use the facility and acknowledge us in the papers and so on. And currently about 50% of astronomers would be Australian and another 50% would be from overseas. And we treat the overseas astronomers as, you know, <laughs> just as we, as, you know, as we do the Australians. Currently around 50 to 60% of the time the telescopes used for pulsar observations. About 10 or 15% would be for VLBI, very long baseline interferometry, where we link up the Parkes telescope with other radio telescopes around Australia and around the globe to simulate a larger telescope. And then the remainder would be for spectral line observations and, and other types of, of observations. Um, but it does depend on the astronomers, what they submit and so on, and how important we think the research is, and we'll give them the time. Um, we try, and as because there is a, a lot of competition, the telescopes operated around the clock. So when astronomers visit, they usually come in groups of two or more, and they work in shifts around the clock to, to get the most of their time. So I've noticed while I've been around here that there's also a 12-metre dish, which is just further down from the Parkes Telescope. Could you talk a little bit about that, please? So the surface area of the Parkes Telescope is about one acre, or about 3,500 square metres. But the next generation radio telescope that the World Radio Astronomy Community wants to build will be one or two orders of magnitude more sensitive still. And um, in fact, what we want to build is is a radio telescope that has a collecting area of a million square metres, or one square kilometre, equivalent to about 300 times the Parkes telescope surface area. So you can't possibly build a single dish that large. It's just impossible. So the idea is to build thousands of smaller antennas, all linked together, so that the combined surface area of all those antennas will be one square kilometre, million square metres. And a consortium of around 20 countries has come together to, to design and build this thing. And about three years ago, the Australia and South Africa were shortlisted as the two preferred sites of where the facility will be built. The final decision as to whether Australia or South Africa will be chosen won't be made until about um, 2012 or 2013. Um, 2011 is when our Pathfinder instrument will be built. Our chosen site where we want to build the Square Kilometre is in the West Australian Desert, about three or 400 kilometres northeast of the small town of Geraldton, which is on the coast of um, Western Australia. The entire shire, I think, has a population of four, and that's over thousands and thousands of square kilometres of arid land. It's just, it really is the middle of nowhere. 
which is what you want. And you want to build something that is incredibly sensitive on the square kilometre array. And so we think we've got the best site for it. But in order to, to strengthen our bid to host the facility, two years ago, the, the Australian federal government gave the CSIRO about $110 million to build a pathfinder instrument there. And we're calling that the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, or ASCAP. And ASCAP instrument will be 36 12-metre diameter antennas built at our preferred site for the SKA, and we hope to have that built by 2011, 2012 or so. The ASCAP is a, is a smaller instrument. Those 12 antennas will have the equivalent collecting area of, of the Parkes telescope. And so the idea is, um, before we go ahead and do that, because we want to build some really innovative technologies and incorporated in that to really push the the cliche, the envelope on the um, of the technology and the, the capabilities. We built here at Parks a, a 12 meter test bed antenna about 500 meters east of the, the the big telescope, where we would test the those new innovative technologies early next year in Western Australia. And then very shortly after that, the other 35 antennas will be built around it. And the idea is that we'll have all those antennas and the, the ASCAP facility built in place, operating, doing great science, just in time for the decision as to where the build the SKA will be made to strengthen our bid. And um, and if we don't get it, then we still have a great facility in Western Australia and we'll, we'll work with the South Africans to build there. But the South Africans have a similar idea. They've built a, a Pathfinder instrument in at their preferred site. Called Meerkat, I think. Meerkat, yeah. But it's using more conventional type technologies for that. Um, but we want to be able to demonstrate that we can operate a telescope in a remote site, and astronomers won't be going out there to to use it. They'll actually be sitting where you know at a science operations centre, probably in Sydney or maybe Geraldton, or even the other side of the world. You know, do everything over the internet. So I think we're still working on just how we're going to to do the observations. But it is a very remote site. Things are looking pretty good, and the test bed antenna we have here is working well at the moment, and our engineers are been quite busy making sure that the, the new technologies will work and we're very confident that they will. Okay. Thank you very much, John. Okay, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for that, Neil and John. And hopefully, Neil, you got a chance to play around with the dish while you were there. Uh, yes, I actually managed to uh, get up onto the top of the dish uh, twice. So on the surface a couple of times for um, the radio astronomy school. And uh, we were there actually for the dust storm, which um, came over the, the desert from the east and went all the way across to Sydney and gathered speed, actually. Um, so for a few days, the 64-metre Parkes telescope was covered in this sort of red film, some red dust, which uh, made it, you know, quite nice to see, actually. So did they send you up there with a brush to clean it off? <laughs> no, they let the uh, the rain wash it off. Uh, fortunately, it doesn't actually affect the observations because the actual dust itself is very, very small. Um doesn't actually interfere with the observation frequency. And another thing that's been suffering from dust recently is NASA's Spirit Rover, which has been stuck on Mars. This is something that we've talked about in previous episodes. The Spirit is stuck in a place called Troy, which has turned out to be quite interesting. But NASA is still wanting to get it up and about again. So they've got a test rover in the Jet Propulsion Lab over in California, and they've been trying to put it in a similar situation and seeing how to get it out of it. And the next step that they've just done is to try and control this test rover remotely so not actually being in the room with it and seeing what data the rover manages to send back to them. Is there any idea how long that will take for them to work out how to get its wheels unstuck? Yeah, I think that they're going to start trying to extract spirit in the beginning of November so hopefully by the next episode we'll 
know a bit more about what's happened. And on a totally different note, the Galloway Forest Park in Scotland is currently making a bid to become a dark sky park, which would make it the first such thing in the UK. And the decision is going to be made around the middle of November. So hopefully we'll have news of that in time for Jodcast Live. And we'll bring that to you then. And if you're in a nice dark site, you'll be able to see plenty of things in the night sky. So here's Ian Morrison to tell us what you can see. Hello again. November 2009. Of course, the nights are getting longer. And uh, with the clocks going back at the end of October, in fact, it's darker earlier in the evening. So we have a lot of chance to view the heavens. And it's a very good month to do that, as we shall see. Just before I talk about the stars you can see and the planets, let me just mention the sun. Uh, if you bother to go to the night sky page on our Jodderbank website, you'll find I've got two images of the sun. One was taken by the Stereo spacecraft in uh, the very end of September and shows a really quite massive prominence leaping above the sun's surface. And a SOHO spacecraft image taken on October the 26th does show quite a nice sunspot group. That's actually now moving almost to the edge of the limb, the right-hand side as we look at it, and appears to have got bigger. So I think the comment might be from that is maybe at last, after one of the longest solar minimas we've had for a while, the sun is actually waking up. Well, what about the evenings? As uh, the sun sets, you can see that lovely region of sky with Cygnus, Lyra and Altair, over on the western side of the sky. Due south after sunset is the square of Pegasus, and from there you can find the galaxy Andromeda, which is fairly high in the south, ideal for looking at at the moment. Uh, below Pegasus is the little circlet of Pisces, in fact below which lies Uranus, as we shall see, and then Cetus to the well. But that part of the sky really is not very bright, fairly empty. Up to the left of Pegasus and Andromeda, we come to another nice little region. You've got Perseus with its uh, rather lovely variable star called Algol. And then to the right of that and up a bit, you have uh, Cassiopeia. If you follow the line between Perseus and Cassiopeia with binoculars, you're looking at the plane of the Milky Way and you should find a little fuzzy area where there are two beautiful clusters. It's called the Perseus Double Cluster. Well worth observing either with binoculars or even better with a small telescope. And then if you look round towards the east, of course, Taurus the Bull is rising with those two lovely clusters, the Pleiades cluster higher up to the right, and below of which is the Hyades cluster that makes up the head of a bull. It's sort of a V-shape. Uh, Aldebaran, a very bright orangey-red star, is the eye of the bull. It is not part of the Hyades cluster. It's about halfway between us and the Hyades cluster, and is moving, in fact, southwards, whereas the stars in the Hyades cluster are moving as a group towards the east. So really a lovely skyscape after sunset. Of course, as the night goes through, Taurus rises, followed by Orion the Hunter, and we have some lovely things to see. OK, well, what about the planets? After sunset, by far the most prominent planet is Jupiter. It's in Capricornus, and uh, its magnitude is dropping very slightly as we go further away from it, or it goes further away from us. We're moving more quickly, perhaps, nearer the sun, so it's us moving away, and it drops from about minus 2.4 to minus 2.3. 
It still, however, has an angular size of 41 arc seconds, so with a small telescope you can see quite a lot of detail on the surface, providing, of course, the atmosphere is fairly steady. And for us in the Northern Hemisphere, we've been saying for a while now that sadly Jupiter is at the bottom part, in the bottom part of the ecliptic, and so never rises all that high above the southern horizon, no more than about 22 or 23 degrees. On the 23rd of the month, it's about 2 degrees and below to the left of a 40% illuminated moon just before first quarter. I'll come back to that because that's a chance too of finding Neptune. Well, Saturn can now be seen in the pre-dawn sky. It rises about 0330 UT at the beginning of November with a magnitude of plus 1.1. So that's about three and a half hours before the sun. But by the end of November, it'll be seen almost due south in the pre-dawn sky. And that won't be at all bad to observe it, providing you don't mind getting up reasonably early. The ring system is still quite close to Edge On. In fact, the tilt angle increases from 3 to 4 degrees during the month, so it will actually appear very, very thin. And because it's not reflecting much light, that's why Saturn isn't as bright as it often is. If you've got a small telescope, you'll easily see the brighter satellite Titan, and perhaps one of 8 or 10 inches, you can actually see several more. So a little skyscape or detailscape to look at with a telescope. Well, Mercury, that actually passes behind the Sun on November the 5th, so fairly obviously it's going to be hidden in the Sun's glare for all of November. It'll pop out again, in fact, in December. Well, the other planet of real interest, of course, is the planet Mars. It's now becoming more prominent in the morning sky, rising, in fact, at, at about 9 or 10 o'clock. I observed it just the other night. The other night. It lies in the constellation of Cancer the Crab, and again, as we'll see, it starts the month passing through the beehive cluster M44. So do please try and have a look at it with binoculars. Cancer the Crab isn't very bright, but you'll certainly see Mars and this lovely little beehive cluster M44, sometimes called Pricipe. Uh, the magnitude is increasing. It gets to plus naught during the month, and the angular size slowly increases up to about 9.8 arc seconds, just under 10 arc seconds. And a nice rule of thumb is that when Mars has an angular size of 10 arc seconds, its magnitude is zero, just as it will be at the very end of November. It'll be seen due south, so obviously highest in the sky, about 56 degrees, which is pretty good, at about 4.30 UT at the end of the month. So if you've got a reasonable telescope, it doesn't have to be very big, by the end of the month you should begin to see some of the more prominent features, such as that rather V-shaped dark object called Certis Major. We're coming closer to Mars as the Earth is overtaking Mars on the inside track, and by about the end of January we have what is called Opposition, which is when Mars is highest in the sky, due south at around midnight and nearest to us. So the next couple of months, as the Earth passes between Mars and the Sun, will be the best time for observing Mars for a couple of years. We'll look forward to it. Venus. Well, that's drawing ever closer to the Sun. You can see it low in the east, rising an hour and about hour and 30 minutes or so before sunrise, but that gets significantly less as the month progresses. I don't think you'll actually pick up Venus much 
beyond the middle of the month. In fact, the phase increases from 95 to 98% during the month, but of course, we're not going to see it much beyond about 96% illuminated. The magnitude remains at about minus 3.9 during the month. So it's on the far side of the sun and is going to be hidden behind the sun for most of the next month or so. Okay, well that's the planets. So what about some of the highlights of the month? It's actually a good month, as I said earlier. Perhaps the key highlight this month is going to be around November the 17th and 18th, which is when we have the Leonid meteor shower. And the great thing this year is that the moon is close to new moon. So its light is not going to prevent us seeing the fainter of the meteors. Every year, around November the 17th and 18th, the Earth passes close to the trails of debris left behind by a comet called Temple Tuttle. And that gives us this annual Leonid meteor shower. Sometimes you get a really spectacular display. And it is just possible at around 2150 UT, or as we still call it in the UK, Greenwich Mean Time, on the night of the 17th, we might get a peak rate for a relatively short time exceeding well over 100 meteors per hour. So that's certainly something well worth looking out for. Again, the details you'll find on the Night Sky page. Something I haven't mentioned before lies in the constellation of Cetus the Whale, down and to the right of Taurus and to the left of Pisces. It's not that prominent, and there aren't many interesting things within it, which is why I don't tend to mention it. It does, however, contain a very interesting variable star that was called Myra, meaning wonderful, by Johann Helvelius in 1662. It had actually been discovered in 1596 by David Fabricus. It was one of the very first variable stars to be discovered. Helvelius discovered that it had a 330-day cycle, during which time its brightness varied from about plus 9.3, you'd need binoculars to see it then, up to about plus 3. And on some occasions, it seems to get to plus 2. It did so, in fact, in February 2007. Well, the peak of brightness of Myra this year is on November the 18th, so it could well be worth looking out for. Probably the best time is around 11 p.m. in the mid-November, when it's fairly high in the south. So that's Myra, the wonderful star. When we don't have a moon in the sky, around the 16th of November, is quite a good time to find the planet Uranus, if you'd like to. It has a magnitude of plus 5.7, so just possibly visible with your unaided eye under dark sky conditions, but easily seen in binoculars. It lies just below the circlet of Pisces, which is itself below the square of Pegasus as a chart in the night sky pages to show you where to find it. I've mentioned M31, the Andromeda galaxy, several times. Pegasus is due south after dark in the evening. If you take the top left-hand star, go round to the left and up to the right a bit, two stars turn sharp right, past one bright star, you should then same distance in the same direction come across the galaxy M31. Just visible with your unaided eye if it's really dark, but easily seen in binoculars. Well worth finding if you haven't seen it already. The photons that fall upon your retina, left Andromeda, about two and a half 
million years ago. On November the 23rd, Jupiter, Neptune and a 23-day-old moon are very close together in the sky in the constellation of Capricornus. There's a map to show you where they are. Um, the moon is just about two degrees up and to the right of Jupiter that evening. Four degrees to the upper left of Jupiter is Neptune at 7.9th magnitude. So you'll need binoculars for that. It's not very bright, but it lies just to the left of a line of three stars, the upper of which, 42 Capricornus, is 5.1 magnitudes, below which are 44 and 45 Capricornus, each at about 6th magnitude. So if you find those and look just to the left of them, you'll easily spot Neptune. Of course, in the day or two before that, and the days after when the moon isn't so close in the sky, you'll see Neptune more easily because the background skylight will be less. And of course, it's so far away, it's not going to move significantly during the month. Still two to go. Um, on the 8th of November, around midnight, the last quarter moon passes below the Beehive Cluster. Now Mars is passing through the Beehive Cluster at the very beginning of the month, so on the 8th it's actually over to the left. Again, a very nice little thing to look for. With binoculars you'll see the moon, Mars, and you'll need them in particular to see the stars of the Beehive Cluster. Finally, this is a pretty toughie. November the 15th, there's a very thin, waning crescent moon, just 2% illuminated. And that is going to be up and to the right of the planet Venus. Probably the last chance to see Venus this month. You're going to have a very good low eastern horizon. And it obviously has to be clear. But you don't often see the moon with such a thin crescent. Well worth looking out for on November the 15th. So there we go. Quite a few highlights, a good month to observe the sky, and let's just hope that on the 17th and 18th we have clear skies to observe the Leonid meteor showers. Well now something for those of you that uh, listen to the Jodcast from the Southern Hemisphere. Of course, as our nights get longer and darker, yours are getting lighter, so you don't have so much chance to see the sky in the next few months. If you look to the north, just after sunset, and it's got dark, you'll see the square of Pegasus in the north. Below that, to the right, you could perhaps find Andromeda, although it won't be very high above the horizon. And then slowly sneaking over to the northwest is the Milky Way, with Deneb in Cygnus, the swan, just setting, above which you've got Aquila the eagle and the little, the little constellation called Delphinus the dolphin. Now what you do have, of course, is fairly high in the sky, the planet Jupiter to observe far better than we can in our northern hemisphere. And of course Neptune, for us we see it to the left, you will see it down to the right. But the little chart on the night sky page could still help you find it. And again, above the circuit of Pisces is the planet Uranus. So you could pick up three planets with binoculars, have a look at Andromeda as well. If you now, on the other hand, look to the south, you've got reasonably high in the south, the small Magellanic cloud with a little globular cluster, 47 Tacani, up to its right. Lower to the left is the large Magellanic cloud, and at the bottom of that, with binoculars, you'll pick up the Tarantula Nebula, which is a lovely star-forming region. 
The Milky Way is stretching from the south, fairly low in the sky, but rising towards the southwest, where you have the constellation of Sagittarius. Let me just this month concentrate on one particular constellation, that of Crooks, the Southern Cross, which isn't very high above the southern sky, but you might well pick it up. It's not that big. You find it by finding the bright star Alpha Centauri, which is up to the right. There's a slightly less bright star, Beta Centauri, to the lower right of Alpha Centauri. They make up the pointers that point down to the left towards Crooks. The star Alpha Crucis, the brightest star in um, Crooks, is in fact a double star. Overall, the pair of stars with magnitudes of 1.33 and 1.73 make up the 12th effective brightest star in the sky. They're separated by four arc seconds, so a small telescope should be able to split them if conditions are reasonably good. They've got surface temperatures of around 27,000 Kelvin, they're highly luminous. In fact, the brightest of the pair is 25,000 times more luminous than our sun. That's quite a star system. In fact, the brightest star is itself a double, and the two component stars orbit every 76 days. But they're so close, you can't split them with a telescope. So, in fact, it's a triple star system. Just below the left-hand star, Beta Crucis, is a rather lovely open cluster called the Jewel Box, so named by Sir John Herschel, who called it a gorgeous piece of fancy jewellery. It's about 7,500 light-years away. It spans a 10-arc-minute field, so telescope would be quite good to see it with, a volume of space about 20 light-years across. And finally, below the Jewel Box cluster is a very dark region of sky. It's called the coal sack. It's actually the darkest section of the Milky Way. Um, whether it should be called an object, I'm not quite sure. But nevertheless, we give it a name. It's a cloud of gas, pear-shaped. It's about 7 degrees long by 5 degrees wide. And it's a dense region of dust and gas about 2,000 light-years away from us that's hiding the light from more distant stars. It's the most prominent and conspicuous dark nebula along the plane of the Milky Way and you can easily pick it out against the bright band of light. So that's another way to help you find Crooks, the Southern Cross. So let's hope it's high enough in the sky for you to see this month. Thanks for that, Ian. And we've got to the point in the show where we discuss the feedback we've had in the last two weeks since the last episode. And last time we asked you for your comments on the slightly new way we were doing Ask an Astronomer with Tim by himself. And we had a few comments relating to that. On Twitter, David Henning says that he thinks it's fine that Ask an Astronomer was solo. And from the website, Sean McKay thanks us for answering his question. And he says that he doesn't really mind whether one or two people do Ask an Astronomer, but he prefers one. Uh, But as long as the questions get answered he doesn't mind either way and i think there were a few comments on the forum as well about that topic yeah i mean the reason for doing ask an astronomer solo is more because we can't ever get hold of tim because he's running around doing so much that it's very hard to get him in the studio when you want him there so in the forum jordan the oak has created flicker group which you'll be able to find the link for on our show notes there's a few pictures in there already mm-hmm. and also um rapid eye made a comment about our intro music 
and has said that it's now growing on him, which is definitely a good thing. I quite like it myself. Yeah, this is because on the last edition we were talking about maybe changing the music because it's now four years since the Jogcast started. Adam and I want to do a heavy metal version of it, but Dave didn't seem to be too keen. Now that would be awesome. Hey, that's what I thought. And of course there's still people posting things on our wall on Facebook. Sarah? Uh, on Facebook, Chris Lee wanted to know if there are any podcasts or MP3 files that talk about messier images so that you could play them on the iPod while looking at objects in a scope. I think that might be an idea to get Ian to do one maybe as an extra night sky kind of thing. And Bill Kenway wrote, thanks very much for your efforts. I enjoy every part of the show. You do excellent interviews and always have interesting topics aimed at just the right level for me. Keep up the good work. Thanks for that, Bill. And finally, thanks to Paul Barnard on Twitter, who spotted that we had rather poor encoding of the low bandwidth version of the Jodcast. And he pointed out that's because we're using a stereo track. So we've changed down to mono for the low bandwidth version, and that seems to improve the audio quality quite a bit. If you have any problem listening to the Jodcast, if the sound quality is really appalling on yours, please let us know. But please also tell us how you're listening, which version you're listening to, um, and any other things that you think might be relevant, like if you're using iTunes or a particular MP3 player, things like that. That helps us track down where the problem is. So to get in touch with us, you can visit the website at www.jodcast.net. You can reach us on the forum at forum.jodcast.net. Or on YouTube, youtube.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And we're on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Jodcast. So that just leaves us to say thanks to John Sarkissian for the interview about parks. In the intro and outro, Chris Montero was Captain Sam Lovell. Ellie Hirschman was Will. Steve Anderson was number one. Bruce Busby was the Educator 101. And Gwendolyn Jensen Woodard was Sarah Connor. So until next time, Jod on. Bye. See you later. Bye. Close channel and arm photon torpedoes. Fire at will. But sir, I don't want to die. Your teleporter has been destroyed by primitive weapons fire. Intruders on the bridge, stand down and identify yourselves. I am the educator model 101. I am from the future to bring the Jodcast to humanity. You're responsible for the transmission we just received? I'll... I am free. Free to find John Connor. Um, that's me. Everyone calls me Will, though. Are you John Connor? Well, yes. Arming tectonic bomb. Detonation in three, two, one. But...